0: For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard
1: Skipper. Happy Saturday, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? Well, I'm celebrating a few changes that I'm implementing here. Last night, uh, during my celebration of Angela Lansbury, someone hacked into uh, Facebook, and I found out that there was a way for them to go in and put them in, actually, as part of my team. So I've made a change today in order to make a comment. On this show, you need to be a subscriber of Richard Skipper Celebrates. And once we get a few uh, more people here, I will tell you about our giveaway today. But who and what are you celebrating? I am celebrating Marion Davies today. I want to take you back to, uh, I'm a lot older than my guest today. Uh, And in 1974, uh, the film That's Entertainment came out. And as a result of this film coming out, there was a nostalgia craze that went over the country. Uh, Everybody was looking back at old Hollywood. Very interesting fact that I will share with everyone. When That's Entertainment came out, it was only 20 years after Gigi. Can you imagine? I mean, going back 20 years ago and celebrating the artists that we have, not to disparage anyone, but there was a magic and there was a glean and there was a special uh, quality that all of those old stars had, older stars had. Uh, But in 1974, a book came out called the MGM Stock Company. And I have been looking desperately for this book for years. I hope that I will find it. In that book, there was one chapter about each of the MGM stars. And of course, one of those stars was Marion Davies. There's been a lot that's been written about her, a lot that's been said about her. Uh, And, of course, we have the film Citizen Kane, and we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But not until now, with Laura Gabrielle, has she really delved into the life, the career, and as I like to call it, the body of worth. Of this amazing woman. I've learned so much about her that I had no idea about. And Laura, I want to begin by celebrating you today and congratulations on this incredible book.
0: Thank you so much, Richard. And the MGM Stock Company book? Yes. I know where you can get one. We can, we'll, we'll talk.
1: Oh, we'll talk later. Uh, yeah. I mean, did you go back to that book as part of your research?
0: Well, actually, um, that, that book wasn't part of my, of my research, but I came across it later. And the, the article, the piece about Marion is surprisingly accurate. You know, some of those, some of those books, um, have things that are recycled from previous, uh, publicity things. And it's, it's, uh, they, they, tend to not be terribly accurate, but this one really was, I was, I was very pleasantly surprised.
1: I wanna, you know, I'm gonna drop a name. Uh, Carol Channing uh, was a friend of mine and I've dropped her name many times on this show. Uh, But she, when she wrote her memoirs of sorts, as she called it, she said, writing a book is a solitary uh, profession, but I'm not gonna go there with you because you got the collaboration of so many people and it truly is a collaborative uh, effort. I wanna go back in your history, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, where did this love of this time timeframe uh, begin and why Marion Davies?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. When I was a very small child, my grandmother showed me classic films. She, she had been a nurse actually at what was then Cedars of Lebanon and is now Cedar sinai Hospital. She took care of all these movie stars. She had, when she was a kid, she had wanted to be a film critic. And anyway, she passed that on to me. And I loved classic films ever since I was, you know, that age, like four, five. Uh, fast forward a bit. At my 13th birthday, I got a box of classic film memoirs, memoirs, biographies. And, and one of them was a book called The Times We Had, which has been marketed as Marion Davies' memoir for many years. It's not exactly Marion Davies' memoir, but we can get into that. And I read it and I thought this woman has lived an incredibly fascinating life and not a lot has been written about her. Even at that young age, I knew that there was some sort of wrong that had been done uh, with, with this woman, that there just was not that much out about her. I started a classic film blog when I was, well, back in 2011, I started this blog. And I realized how much I loved the research and the writing process. I was putting out all these blog posts with, with tons of research involved. And people started asking me, have you ever thought about doing something bigger? And I said, well, yes. And who could I write about who hasn't had a lot written about them? First name that came to mind? was Marion Davies and she stuck with me I could not I could not shake the idea of doing Marion Davies as as a as a I didn't know what it would become but as as a larger project so I took it as a sign that I could not get rid of this idea in my mind I went down to LA found her papers and things started coming together Uh, pretty remarkably quickly. And that was nine years ago. It's taken me nine years to write this.
1: Well, congratulations. And
0: thank you. And it, as I said, I didn't know what it would become, but it it became clear to me probably about two months or so in, that this was going to be a full length biography and not a coffee table book, not a anything. And so when, when I, when I realized that, then I knew that I was in it for the long haul. I knew that I was in it for about this long because that's how long it takes. It takes, uh, it, it takes a lot of years to write somebody's full it life. Yeah. Uh,
1: so, so I want to say, uh, you know, social media has, uh, so, and you can find a lot of negative stuff out there, uh, but there's some positive. And one of the biggest positives I'm going to mention you is finding you on Twitter because you tweeted about the book and I immediately wrote to you and said, I wanna do this. And you said, let's do it. So thank you for being here. Um, What do you think is the big, what do you know is the biggest misperception uh, that people have about Marian Davies? There are a lot of
0: misconceptions and I think that the biggest, we could talk about this big umbrella misconception that she is Susan Alexander In Citizen Kane, you know, if you've seen the movie Citizen Kane, there's this character, Susan Alexander, who is an untalented opera singer who's had her career bankrolled by this character Kane. And then when she uses him up, she she leaves him. Right. Because Kane in Citizen Kane is considered to be William Randolph Hearst, people think automatically that Susan Alexander is considered to be Marion Davies. But. The reality is a lot more complicated than that. The character of Kane is a composite. This character of Susan Alexander is a composite. And uh, there's there's a character who is much more like like Susan Alexander Kane in, in history uh, than Marion Davies is, but Marion Davies is much more famous than this other person. So people mm-hmm. think that people think that she was untalented, people think that she used Hearst for his money. People think all of these things about her that are wrong because of this movie. And Orson Welles, Orson Welles, to his credit, later on uh, felt horrible about this. And, and you know that people thought that this was Marion Davies. And he a- apologized many times, actually. He wrote the foreword for The Times We Had, which, as we mentioned before, was marketed as Marion Davies' memoir, essentially saying that this is not correct. Um, but, but, but it lives on, it lives on because Citizen Kane lives on. So, so that's really the biggest misconception about, about Marion Davies. In reality, Marion Davies was an incredibly gifted, talented comedian, mimic, uh, uh, you know, she, she impersonated the stars of the day with this, this remarkable accuracy. Uh, if you've ever watched something like Blondie of the Follies or the Patsy, you can see it. And, and, uh, and she and Hurst were genuinely in love, and they were soulmates, and she spent three days by his bedside before he died, sleepless, you know, w- uh, waiting for for the moment with a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to ask you, I found in my research, uh, in addition to reading the book, I found this quote, and Perhaps you can correct us if this is an actual quote from her or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And the quote is, I had a really good time at MGM. Do you know the quote that I'm going with? Uh, And we had no quarrels much, except once in a while, I go up to the front office and say, I thought I could be doing something big, like washing elephants. All my life, I wanted to have talent. Finally, I had to admit there was nothing there. Marion Davies. Is that an accurate quote?
0: You know, I haven't heard her say that. Uh I haven't heard her say that, but I wouldn't be it sounds like Marion. Um, it sounds like something that Marion would say. She uh she didn't she didn't think a lot of herself. Uh she didn't think a lot of her own talent, even though her talent was there in just so much. Mm-hmm. But she uh she was very she was very modest and and very uh not um not terribly appreciative of what she had um in, in terms of in terms of talent. She thought that she was kind of a she was doing a job. That's the way that she approached her career. That she was doing a job and and that there was there was nothing really there to keep her a star. She didn't particularly want to be a star. It wasn't like she wasn't like Joan Crawford, for example, mm-hmm. who maintained her star at all costs.
1: Uh well Merit- let's compare the two for a moment, if you don't mind. Sure. Joan Crawford uh, lived, ate, and breathed her career. Uh, She, I I mean, she knew what the publicity machine was at MGM, and she was at the beginning of her career, and beyond, even at Warner Brothers. She knew what she needed to do to keep herself in the spotlight. Marion Davies, on the other hand, uh, did not really like bringing a lot of attention to herself personally. She didn't do a lot of interviews. uh, So that must have been painstaking work on your behalf uh, to try to piece all the pieces together uh, when she didn't go out and do a lot of these types of interviews. Is that a correct assessment of the two?
0: Yes. Marion didn't give very many interviews. And the reason for that is a couple of reasons for that. One, she had a very bad stutter um, that she knew would come out and that it would slow things down. So the interviews that she did give are in print uh, and not
1: on camera,
0: you know, face-to-face, right. And and she would only give those print interviews to the people that she knew really well. Like she gave an interview to Hedda Hopper um, that is probably the most extensive interview that she ever gave, and it's not even terribly extensive. Uh so, and she knew Hedda from from way back. So uh, so yes, she didn't give interviews and uh, you know, not very many. And so the things that I have had to the things that I've had to to, to get to are archives, right? Her letters, uh, interviews with people who knew her, and her own autobiographical tapes. So I have her autobiographical tapes that she recorded in anticipation of releasing a memoir, but she they never did it. She never did anything with it. Um, the Times we had is a posthumous sort of cut and paste of these memoirs. So these two editors found her tapes and decided after her death, this is during the Patricia Hearst kidnapping, mm-hmm. when there was sort of a renewed interest in Hearst, to craft, A memoir themselves that might have been sort of what a Marion Davies memoir might have looked like but um but the tapes are something very different the tapes are a conversation between her and uh, a trusted friend and uh so I get a lot from those tapes both what Marion Davies thought, but then again, that also has to be interpreted a little bit because she wrote it at a difficult time in her life and it colors some of the things that she says about certain people and certain events. Um, but it also shows me how she interacted with with people and what her personality was. And uh, so those tapes have been very useful. Um, and also the, the tapes that Fred Lawrence Giles did for his biography, the only other biography that has been written about Marion Davies. In 1972, I have his tapes, his interview tapes. So, uh, so those things have been have been very useful. But, but the, the personal interviews, they just don't really exist.
1: So, you do also that I mean, that time in Hollywood. Uh, at what time did she start writing uh, or putting this together in the trajectory of her life?
0: The the, the tapes.
1: The tapes and the book. Uh, that she began working on.
0: Right, that was the early 1950s. Uh, so she started recording the tapes in early 1953. And then she stopped the next year. Uh, it, it didn't It didn't take very long, but there, there were about 16 tapes that were recorded. Mm. And I'd say about half of them are still in existence. And the rest of them, it's a whole big long story, but the rest of them have been lost, but there is a complete transcript that exists. So uh, I've looked at the at the transcript for those lost tapes, and then the tapes that I have access to, I listen to and use her words wherever possible.
1: You know, a lot of celebrity biographies came out, uh, you know, especially in the nineteen early nineteen sixties and seventies, and even then, a lot of those celebrity biographies or autobiographies that came out. Uh, were a product of the era that they had come through. Uh, and there's this whole MGM uh, publicity department and that painted a picture of people that was not based on any type of reality. Uh, let's face it, how honest was she uh, in terms of telling her story uh, on these transcripts and in these tapes?
0: Well, like I mentioned, she started recording them at a difficult time in her life. This was shortly after Hearst died. And she was having trouble with the Hearst sons, which pained her horribly. And so she was upset about some of the things that were happening to her.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so there's there's that 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 colors what she what she said. And then there's also the fact that she felt. I mean, this is the same reason why she didn't really give interviews, partly right, because she. Feared revealing too much. She feared revealing too much about her relationship with Hearst, um, about her. Um, she, this was an era of intense social stigma around the life that they had that they had lived. Mm-hmm. So, so she didn't want to say too much. She was she was holding back, and that's the reason, really, why this project was abandoned because an honest autobiography was proving to be unattainable. Um, but that said, when I listen to when I listen to the tapes, I can take what she says and I can go to other sources and try to verify what she says. And I've, and I've been able to do that for many things, many things that she says. Other things she says, I've been able to go to other sources and say, okay well that's not true. Um, and, uh, and I also get to hear, as I mentioned before, I also get to hear how she interacted with the interviewer and how sweet it was. It was a lovely, uh, relationship that they had between friends. You know, she, he was much younger than she was. Uh, and, and, uh, so she would always refer to him as, you know, sweetie, honey, you know, um, uh, this, this lovely little rapport that she had with him that doesn't come through in the book because the, in in the times we had, right. The posthumous Mm -hmm. copy paste because that one was put together as a, as a single narrative and not as a conversation.
1: Now, I also want to ask you, and again, uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers because I want people to buy the book. Uh, But if you can talk about uh, the two most powerful uh, gossip columnist in Hollywood at that time, Luella mm. and Hedda and how yeah. they shaped uh, her life and the influence they had on her and her thoughts on them as well.
0: Right. Hedda and Luella were two of the biggest forces in, in Hollywood. They were feared. Uh, anything that they, that they printed had, had the, had the potential to make or break a career. Uh, and Luella Parsons, we'll start with Luella. Mm-hmm. Luella Parsons had worked uh, at a different paper before she started writing for Hearst in 1923. And Marion helped get her that job. Marion helped get her the job from the Telegraph to, uh I'll make the change from the Telegraph to the Hearst papers. And, and um, so Luella, had, had written really glowing things about Marion, hoping to get a job at the Hearst Papers. And then she moved uh, West in 1925 with Marion. So Marion and Luella uh, were on the train together when Luella came out to California for the first time. And, uh, and she started working there and really getting into the heart of, of Hollywood. But she was a Hearst journalist. Um, she was a, she was a Hearst journalist and Marion sometimes I mean I don't I don't want to I don't want to give away too much here mm-hmm. because it's all in the book but but she knew let's put it this way she knew what side her bread was buttered on
1: exactly exactly
0: yes and it was very hard for for Marion because Marion considered her a friend and there were some betrayals and it was it was it was hard. Hedda, on the other hand, even though Hedda Hopper, you know, is this sort of rabid right wing nutcase in many in many <laughs> in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but she uh, she, to her credit, was very good to Marion um, in in comparison to to Luella. Um she remained a a close friend until the uh, until the end. And Hedda had started out as an actress. I don't know how many people know that, but Hedda had started out That's as
1: great.
0: yes, as, as an actress, and she was with Marion in a movie called xander the great and uh and Marion helped support hedda as she as she made this career change too uh, to to being a columnist and even though she didn't you know she she wasn't like Luella, so Luella was so tied to the hearst papers. Um, she she really loved Marion, um, as as many people did, but she she was much more loyal than Hedda was. I mean, than, than, sorry, than Luella was.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I, I wanna talk a moment about uh, the road that led her to Hollywood. Uh, and again, uh, I mean, the details in this book are just amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how she eventually got to MGM and her relationship with Louis V. Mayer. Sure.
0: She started out as a chorus girl in New York, and she, uh, long story short, we won't give away the, the, the big details, but she was taken under Hearst's wing uh, in 1918, and became a contract player, or a star, you know, say contract, she became under contract, we can say, to Cosmopolitan. Uh, which was Hearst's uh, Hearst Studio,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and she worked in New York through up until 1924 when she moved out to uh, out to Hollywood. the The center of the film industry was in New York for a long time, uh, and then there were a bunch of studios that started started popping up in, in California, in Southern California, and it was clear eventually that the future of the film industry was in California. So Hearst followed that and moved moved Cosmopolitan out West to join with the newly formed MGM. So Cosmopolitan joined with MGM. It was very beneficial for MGM to have Cosmopolitan because it meant automatic coverage of MGM movies in the Hearst papers, very lucrative. So, so Marion moved with Cosmopolitan out West signed a contract with MGM because Cosmopolitan was now part of MGM and she was able with her new contract to have more control over her career. She had been in these big lavish dramas and things with elaborate sets that Hearst was so eager to spend money on but she really wanted to be a comedian from the very beginning and people saw that she was a comedian, uh, you know, they would see her at parties and see her sort of acting up on the set and think this woman is extremely funny, uh, and and so she went to uh, Irving Thalberg, the head of production at MGM, and they together sort of teamed up and convinced Hearst to allow her to play in more more serious, <laughs> they serious comedies, right? more pure comedy solid comedies she had done a little bit of light comedy you know she had done light comedy before but she she wanted to do more so she was in this movie called the fair co-ed which is a basketball movie and she's just like running and jumping around everywhere and doing slapstick and that was that was the first the first real comedy that she that she did then she followed that up with uh, you know, with Graustark which is also pretty pretty funny and then and then uh, later on she did this spate of movies in 1928 the cardboard lover the Patsy uh, show people right so by 1928 she was a she was a comedian by 1928 and Hearst finally came around a little bit and and said okay you know we, we can do this uh, to so he he was able to move a bit but he never really lost this idea of Marion Davies as what he initially imagined her to be this this beautiful ethereal creature who was to be surrounded he wanted her to play he wanted her to play in in Marie Antoinette right mm-hmm. Later, mm-hmm. later on uh when she was approaching 40 and uh and that just was not going to happen for many reasons but but anyway so she uh she established herself at MGM, and I think she was—I think she was quite happy there. Uh, she made a lot of a lot of friends, uh, both as both in the acting department and also in the writing, and and uh, and I, yeah, I, th- I think she had a good time.
1: Well, I want to ask you because one of the takeaways from your book is uh, she was a real—I mean, she really had a strong sense of who she was. Yes. Uh, where she fit in, and she had a real strong sense, I mean, in terms of negotiating, and I'm not talking just about negotiating contracts. I'm talking about negotiating life itself. She was very, very independent and knew what she wanted and went after it. Where do you yes. think that, that really came from, that, that gravitas that uh, or that uh, grounding that she had that uh, made her, you know, with the biggest names in show business, she stood her ground.
0: I think a lot of it was temperamental. I think that, that it was uh, who she was. She um, she was raised with. She was raised with a certain sense of independence. I think that she had that naturally, and her her parents didn't didn't ever try to quash her spirit. You know, her parents appreciated her for who she was. And I think that that gave rise to some confidence in, um, in her that allowed her to, uh, to know her, her, her spot in the world. Um, and, and she, I don't know. She was always a very independent person. Um, she was earning her own money by, by her teen years. And she knew how the industry worked. Um,
1: and she became so, a good advocate for children. I mean, uh, that was, uh, you know, that was something that was an eye opener for me. Uh, I want to shed light on that for a moment.
0: Yeah. She loved children, loved children and realized when she moved to LA that there was a need in West LA for a health clinic for low-income children in, in West LA. There, there really wasn't anything of the sort there. So she founded one. She founded the Marion Davies Children's Clinic that was a free healthcare uh, clinic for low-income children in West Los Angeles. So so anybody, any low-income child who needed healthcare could come to the Marion Davies Children's Clinic and get high-quality care. These were doctors from from uh, other clinics in the community who would volunteer their time to come to the Marion Davies Children's Clinic and and treat these kids. And the interesting thing about, well, a lot of interesting things, but one of the interesting things about the Marion Davies Children's Clinic was that not only was it, you know, a a need that was filled for these these low income children, but the community of West LA at that time was largely Mexican and Japanese immigrants
1: Mm -hmm. and,
0: there was a lot of racism. I mean, this is, this is the mid twenties, right? There was a lot of racism in, in, uh, in, in the country at, at this point and the clinic served everyone. So it was, it was a haven. It was a safe haven from the racism of, uh, of the time. And I have some interviews with kids who were treated at the, at the clinic and they talk about that. They talk about how, um, One person's father had been rejected by the the unions because he was Mexican, but there was equal treatment. There was equal treatment at the clinic, and so that was uh, a real lifesaver for for many people psychologically and emotionally. Um, So it it provided a real service.
1: I'm going to get to you in a moment and your process in terms of everything coming together, but writing the book. What do you consider was the biggest aha moment for you?
0: Hmm, that's a really good question. Uh, there are, there are a lot of aha moments in many different domains. There was the aha moment that this was going to be a big biography, right? This was going to be like a full length thing. Um, and I was getting all this information so fast. I just thought, yeah, there's no way I'm going to be able to make this anything but a but a huge biography. Uh listening to her tapes listening to her autobiographical tapes i realized uh i mean i think i talk about this a little bit uh, you know i talk about this a little bit at the beginning of the book
1: Mm -hmm.
0: i realized who she was like as as a person i heard it i saw it like you know like we were As if we were across
1: the. When you started out on this journey, you already knew that you were going to be writing a book. You did not imagine that it was going to become this huge book that it became. But as you were writing this book, was there something that turned you around early on where you said, my God, this story has to be told?
0: Well, I sort of already knew that the story had to be told um, because I, I knew that she had been misunderstood. Um, but, but I think it was an organic, I I think it was an organic process. Um, as the more I kept going, the more I thought, wow, 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 wow. This is really great. Uh, and this is a story with an arc. Um, her life had a natural arc that, that really lent itself to a compelling story. And I just followed the arc. And so I guess, I can't really say when I realized that that this arc was there, it just sort of revealed itself.
1: Um,
0: and and I, I, I just put it together.
1: Um, now, I always ask all uh, authors this question and, uh, and the answers are varied across the field. When did you know that this book was ready to go to the public?
0: it's a tough question because it's nothing is ever done you know <laughs> nothing is ever there, there's always there's always more but i really think that having a deadline helps <laughs> um i um you know i had been i had been working for a long time i had started writing i had essentially finished the book the the arc that i was talking about had been written and um and I had gotten a publisher. It's a whole big long story about that as well, but I had I want
1: to ask about that. At what point in your process uh, did you reach out to a publisher, or did they reach out to you?
0: It's it's a it's it's kind of a it's kind of a nice story actually. From the very beginning, um, University of California Press was my number one top dream publisher. And because, and the reason for that is because one, it was an academic press, so I knew that it would be, um, that they would be as interested in the historical accuracy as I was, uh, and I wouldn't be forced to tell, um, to tell a story in a way that would sell, quote unquote, right? I I could tell the story as it was, present the facts, right? So, academic press. And also Marion had such a connection to the University of California because the children's clinic we were talking about before the children's Mm -hmm. clinic was donated eventually to, to UCLA. And so she had a real link to UCLA and the University of California. So those two things together made University of California press my number one top publisher. So Fast forward nine years, right? And um, I was introduced to somebody from the University of California Press. And I um, talked about the book. And they jumped at it right away. I wrote a, I wrote a um, uh, proposal. Yes, thank you. A proposal. And sent it in. And they approved it we got a contract together and I had a deadline to get them the manuscript. And so it was all, it it was, it was wonderful. Um, It was wonderful that, that, and that's been the story of this book too. I've had so many things go right, um, which is, which is, is not exactly normal when, when you're writing a big book like this, people have a lot of setbacks, but I, it's been very smooth sailing for me, which is great.
1: Um, now, but, I, I, I'm. A, this is going to be a woo-woo question, uh, but uh, do you feel that she had any hand in this book as well?
0: Well, um, I think no, that's uh, kind of a crazy it's, question. It's 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 sort of interesting because it's sort of interesting because I
1: um,
0: I think that a lot of the things that have happened are are so kind of what she, what she would have uh what she would have done with her friends you know like like helping people out by getting them this job and you know yeah it's it, it's not something that i normally that i normally buy into but sometimes <laughs> times, sometimes sometimes i find myself being like oh thank you marian in
1: this moments um, yeah. so when the book was finished and it was gotten got to the publisher, and now it's out for mm-hmm. everybody to get your own copy, um, how has your life changed since the book has come out?
0: Well, I'm a lot more exhausted because I have a lot of events to do. <laughs> um, Which yeah, is good.
1: It's, it's, that's a good
0: thing. It's Very good. It's all very positive. Yes, but right now I'm I'm in LA. Right, I'm in I'm in LA for a weekend of events. Uh, I live I live in Oakland, so I live up up in Northern California. That's great. Yes, but I did uh, an event on Thursday with uh, Larry Edmonds Bookshop in in L.A. I have this today, which is wonderful. And then I have uh, on Sunday, I have a big event at the Annenberg Beach House, which is one of Marion's homes. So so I have this spate of events in L.A. I just I got back from New York a few um, a few weeks ago. I'm going to D.C., um, you know, so there I feel like I'm traveling all over the place and yes, it's wonderful. And a friend of mine, a friend of mine in LA, uh, just earlier this morning said, Oh, do you want to, do you want to travel out to Burbank and have coffee? I was like, I can't, I can't travel anywhere anymore. It's exhausting. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but it's, but, but it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's, it's a good kind of exhausted.
1: No, so as you were writing the book, and I mean, again, as I said earlier, it, it's truly a collaborative process. Uh, and you said that it was rather easy for you. Once the door started opening, uh, did each door lead to another door opening? Or again, your pro- uh, what was your process in terms of yeah. writing the book? Were there specific hours that you put aside each day? Or did you find that you were this became your magnificent obsession that this book had to be done?
0: many doors opened as a result of other doors being opened that's that's absolutely true um i would go to an archive and i would find a piece of information and then i would go search for more information about that new piece of information and then it would be it, it, it everything would just kind of fall open and it would be all there um and and uh in terms of the <laughs> the magnificent obsession thing that it had to be done. It wasn't necessarily that I set aside a certain number of hours to work every day. I did try when I was in the writing process. I did try to write every evening. So I do my best work at night. That's something that um, I don't I don't know if that's if that's common. I've heard it before. But um, but my best work is done at night when there are no distractions and I can just just get it all out. So I would stay up. Um, especially in the last part of the writing process, uh, you know, when the book was approaching uh, the deadline to send it to the to the publisher, I would stay up, you know, until like two in the morning, um, just getting everything together, writing, reviewing, editing, uh, and and uh, so so I would do that, you know, every night, more or less every night, depending on how much needed to be done for maybe like three or four months until the book was um, was ready.
1: Were there any bumps in the road or was it smooth sailing all along? I'm
0: trying to think if there are any major bumps in the road. Uh, I can't really think of any, which is, which is pretty great. Uh, yeah, I mean, the only the, the real bump in the road, though, was COVID, when COVID hit. Yes. Um, and I couldn't get into the archives to to get certain things that I needed, but the people, the people who worked at those archives were wonderful. Um, they would they would say, okay, well, we can you know we can make a special trip and we can go in there and just tell us what box we need to go into, and and so they and they did it for me, and it was and I'm really very grateful to those people. I thank them in in my acknowledgments specifically because it it was a it was above and beyond uh, what they did.
1: Now, and, I reached out and I asked for a, a favorite photo, which we have in our background. But this photo, I mean, first yeah. of all, the book is gorgeous. It's a beautiful book. Yes. Um, how much input did you have into the look and feel of the book?
0: I chose that photo. I wanted that photo to be the cover. Uh, it I think it says a lot about Marion. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, it shows her confidence, it shows her self-assuredness, uh, and it shows that she was the captain of her soul. I mean, you can sort of see it in her face, right? Mm-hmm. Just this very solid person. Uh, and... I, they love, show- I mean, how did
1: the title come to you? Because first of all, great title.
0: Thank you. Uh, the title came to me from Marion's own autobiographical tapes. When she was recording her autobiographical tapes, she told... Uh, She was talking about Hearst to uh, to the person who was interviewing her. And she said, "Uh, he really wanted me to be everything that he wanted me to be because he really did adore me. But I'm the captain of my soul. And therefore, what I want to do, I want to do myself, regardless of what other people think that I should do. Uh, So that's number one. And then if you read where it comes from, it comes from a poem. Right. So she was quoting a poem. She's a very literary person. Um, She's quoting a poem uh, called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. You read the poem, it's in the book. And it so mirrors many of the experiences in Marion Davies' life. So I, um, so I thought that that needed to be the title. One, because it was Marion's own words about herself. And two, because the poem just evokes so much about her yeah
1: And now that the book is out, what do you hope that readers will come away with from reading this book?
0: I hope that they will come away with the uh, the idea that Marion Davies was her own person. Uh, she was a woman at a difficult time for women um, who asserted herself and and was, was the captain of her soul and we can we can take a lot from that. We can learn a lot from from Marion and and her story uh, just to always be yourself uh, to uh, to not uh, apologize or give in for anything that you feel like you you need or want to do. and also an interesting thing that I, I think it's relevant she helped Ingrid Bergman out a lot. When Ingrid Bergman was um, being vilified in the press for her affair with Roberto Rossellini, some of the things that she said about Ingrid Bergman, I think could also apply to to Marion herself. She mm-hmm. said about Ingrid Bergman, she said, if a woman of her great character has courage enough to really go ahead with her life, why should she be criticized? Amen. So so she said that about Ingrid Bergman and we could also talk to, talk about that with with Marion right i mean i think that she mm-hmm. she had a lot of courage to live her life her way and uh, we can learn from that
1: absolutely um We are gonna do, thank you for your generosity because in addition to being here today in the midst of your busy schedule, um, and I hope you've got your coffee so we can at least have our coffee together. (laughs) So um, uh, you are also going to give away an autographed copy of your book, so which I appreciate. And anything I can do in terms of uh, spreading the word about this book, trust me, I'm gonna be out there Singing your praises everywhere because I just love the book. But Thank the word somebody. that I got, the phrase I chose today, everyone, is financial stability. Uh, I pulled the, uh, this this morning. And when it comes to financial stability in Marion Davies' life, finish the sentence.
0: Oh, boy. There's so much to say. Uh, financial stability was a. Uh, something that came naturally to Marion herself, she was always very good with her own money. She had a lot of it. She had uh, she negotiated her own contract with MGM for ten thousand dollars a week and invested very wisely. Uh, Hearst was terrible with money, and and when he uh, had financial problems, it surprises a lot of people that he had financial problems. But in the but in the mid nineteen thirties, the Hearst Corporation was going under, and Marion within 48 hours, pulled together a million dollars and gave him a check um, to help him. Didn't want to be paid back. Hearst Corporation said, we can't accept a gift. You have to, it has to be a loan. Um, but but uh, she didn't want to be paid back at all. Um, but it's because of Marion and her own financial stability and her desire to use her financial stability to help other people, that the Hearst Corporation still exists today.
1: That's amazing. Um, yeah. Danny Miller, who's watching, uh, and he's been uh, singing your praises all through the show. So uh, thank you, Danny. Thank um, He said, uh, today is Joan Fontaine's birthday. Um, yes, it and, is. Uh, to ask you about her contact with Joan and Sister Olivia. And then I want to tell you- uh, an anecdote that I have about uh, Joan Fontaine.
0: Uh, Great, so, okay,
1: uh, you go first.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I interviewed Joan Fontaine by uh, via via email, you know, via writing. Um, uh, it was lovely. She uh, it, to, to connect it to Marion a little bit, actually. Um, Joan and Marion Davies knew each other, and Joan. I don't think terribly well, but but Joan wrote Marion a really beautiful condolence card when Hearst died. Um, and I saw it in in her in her archives in Marion's archives. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I interviewed Joan. It appeared on my blog uh, on her very last birthday. Um, and and it was great. And Olivia, I met. I met Olivia in uh, Paris.
1: I am for that one. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, I met her in Paris in 2011. And I have a signed copy of uh, Every Frenchman Has One, her, her book. And um, they're both, both of them are, were, sadly, uh, very dignified, great ladies.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, in the early 80s, uh, when No Bed of Roses came out, mm-hmm. uh, I went to, there was a series in New York uh, 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 by Harold Kennedy uh, and I went, he went to interview her and she came in, Joan Fontaine, gorgeous, regal, as you said, dignified, perfect yes. word to describe. And she came in and she said, I will talk about anything <laughs> except my sister. Right. And the Never very heard. first person that stood up said, who's your sister? Oh my gosh. And, and that is brought, funny. It brought the entire room down. And I will never forget this. Joan Fontaine stood up and she got all the flowers and there were flowers everywhere. And she got them into like this huge bouquet, took them to her, said, these are for you and I'm taking you out to dinner afterwards. That is hilarious. <laughs>
0: that, sounds, that sounds very
1: Joan. And it was just Absolutely. one of the most incredible, I will never forget that. And it was so just hilarious. a memory of being there. And, because when this woman stood up and said, who's your sister? You could hear this collective gasp go right through the entire room. It was <laughs>
0: amazing. Oh, that's funny. Love so
1: it. as we wind down, I've just got some fun questions that I'm going to ask you. They are, have nothing to do with the book or anything. They're just random questions. Yeah. And the first question that I'm going to ask you is, what have you uh, bought that you love so much that you would happily buy it again? And I'm going to tie it in with your book. What did you what moment or what thing have you bought in relation to Marion Davies that you would buy happily again?
0: there's a photo, there's a photo that appears in the book that I am in love with. It's, um, it's a photo of Marion with her little dog, with her dog, Gandy, who, uh, is pulling on her coat. Uh, I don't know if you you saw that in the book, uh, Richard, but the, but it's there and, and it was not a cheap photo. I had to, I had to get a lot of, uh, a lot of resources together to, to get that photo. But I needed that photo is it, it, it says so much. It says so much about, about her and her relationship to her dog. Right. And how he's pulling on this probably very expensive coat and she's just laughing at him. Um, I love that picture. And I, and uh, I would happily have, happily have, have gotten all those resources together to, to get it again if I needed it.
1: Uh, how did oh, how did you find this photograph, and how were you able to uh, to actually purchase the photo? It was
0: it was it was it, it it was I found I saw it at an auction. Actually, I think it was it was it was being sold at one of the uh, Bonhams or Christie's mm-hmm. or something, and and I saw it, and I had never seen it before, and I I'm not sure where it came from, but but. I said I have to have this for the book.
1: Well, good for you. So, and yeah, for and it
0: came of... with of other. There were there were several other photos that came with it that are also lovely. But they, I, it was for that photo that I that I needed that stack of pictures.
1: So this card is called an impact card, yeah. and it says, "Reach out to someone from your past and tell them something you appreciate about them." So, and again, in relation to writing the book, and I know. You mentioned your mom in the book, you know, uh, in, in your introduction, reading mm-hmm. over everything. For, so, mom, thank you for that. Uh, but someone on your journey to get this book uh, published that you would like to just give a shout out to right now?
0: Um, living or not living? Or does it matter? Marion's great niece, um, Marion Lake Canessa, who lives in France. And has been an absolute gift to um, to this project in every way you can imagine all her support we've become very good friends um, and all her stories and her memories have been have been invaluable. Um, Another person is Stanley Flank, who I mentioned, both of those people are in the special acknowledgements page. Though. Yes. Um, Stanley Flank was uh, the, the person who helped Marion do her autobiographical tapes and was also a correspondent for Life Magazine, was the only member of the press witness to Hearst's death. And he's still alive. Um, and he's, uh, he's also been a tremendous, tremendous gift
1: to this project. And this is called the Benjamin Franklin Effect. That's okay. the card, okay? And it says, ask a person for a tiny favor to make them like you. Well, I like you a lot. I hope you like me as well. Uh, for like example, uh, pass me the tissue, please, or what's the what's your Wi-Fi password? I love this. The <laughs> so-called Benjamin Franklin effect is a cognitive bias that causes people to like someone more than they do uh, that person a favor. I don't like the, the way this is phrased. Uh, There's so many people out there who helped get this Book to where it is today. So I want to thank all of them. Uh, Me too. Thank you because it's again. uh, I I love biographies. I don't read fiction. uh, Mm -hmm. Full disclosure, because I believe that real life is much more exciting and I read biographies. When this arrived in the mail, um, I felt like it was Christmas morning and I sat down and thank you for your inscription to me in the book, uh, Mm -hmm. sat down and started reading this book and I could not put it down. Uh, So again, uh, I wanna thank everyone. We're gonna give away a copy of the book right now. Um, So this is what we do. Uh, So we've gotten a few people. I'm gonna ask uh, another question that'll give people a chance to to respond, and um, what uh, the, the question is: What's been good this week in relation to your book?
0: What's been good this week in relation to my book? You're, this is my. This is to me.
1: This is to you.
0: Okay. So, um, uh, well, there are a lot, a lot of, a lot of things happen a lot. So I have to, uh, I have to, have to think about it. The event at Larry Edmonds was lovely. Um, the, the event at Larry Edmonds on Thursday was, was very, very nice. It was a, it was a crowd of many people who I knew, you know, I have a lot of, a lot of uh, friends in LA and they were all there and, and cheering on the book. And so that was, that was wonderful. And um, trying to think what else, well, there's a big, apparently, I haven't seen it yet, but apparently there's a big uh, color, uh, Full-page UC Press ad in the LA Times today, um, where where Caption of Her Soul is is featured. Um, so that's good. Um, looking forward to the Beach House event on Sunday. Uh, I feel like um, was there something else big that happened this week? I feel like there was. <laughs> of course, I'm trying to like rack my brain to think of it. Um, um, hmm. Yeah, I mean there. Um, there's so many things happen all the time, uh, and it's 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 great.
1: Well, it's great. Uh, let's give away a copy of your book. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, this is how this is done. And uh, again, I'm going to say uh, my closing remarks, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. You've got the final word today, Frances Shea. Uh, dear oh, friend, yay! Do you
0: okay, you no,
1: know Frances.
0: I, I don't. But that's great. <laughs>
1: Francis is on Facebook. Connect that way, and uh, you know. And if you have trouble, uh, you know, let me know. Uh, it really is an incredible book, and I want to thank uh, everyone uh, for being here uh, today. Um, I truly believe, Laura, that you have given Marian her voice. And,
0: thank you.
1: I think that that is the greatest gift that anybody can do for anyone else. And uh, you uh, celebrate her, you tell her story, and uh, it's just uh, an incredible book. Um, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. If you can afford to do this, go to your favorite bookseller, Uh, and it is available on Amazon, and I will pull the address up here, Uh, but if you put in uh, Captain of our Soul, it's going to come up, Uh, but it is available uh, on Amazon. But you can call your favorite bookseller and make sure that they have this book in stock in the store, and you can request it. That's a good thing that you can do. I also say, if you're able and able to afford to do this, uh, go and order two copies of this book. Keep one for yourself, And send one to the second name that pops up on your Facebook friends list today. Because I always believe it's very important to reach out and let people know what you think of them. I mean, we all get a chance to get to know Marion because of the pages of this book. But in terms of our real friends that are here uh, with us now, take the moment, pick up the phone, call that second name on your list and reach out with that phone call and let them know what you think of them in positive terms, of course. So uh, I would love for everyone to read this book because it is just so incredible. Um, I have a dear friend, Sean Moniger, and he always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. You never know what someone else is going through right now. But she was the captain of her soul, and I am the skipper of mine. So so anyway, I'm going to leave the screen, Laura, and I'm going to turn it over to you. You've got the final word today. It could be about anything that we talked about that you want to build upon, uh, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had. This is your chance to say that. Um, Or if there's just any message that you want to leave everyone with today. Um, a philosophy or anything that perhaps you learned from uh, Marion in terms of writing this book. Um, And don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. And my hope is that anytime you feel that you have uh, a story to tell or anything that you'll consider Richard Skipper celebrates as one of your stopping off points, because I really enjoyed getting to know you today. Yes.
0: And me too. Thank you, Richard. It's lovely what you do. I mean, it's just really beautiful. Thank you. and Um,
1: it's, It's all yours now.
0: Thank you. So I think what I'd like to say um, regarding what I learned from Marion is to always, always build people up. Um, she was generous, generous to a fault, some people say. Uh, and she always thought about other people before herself. And uh, she, she always made it a point to build up her friends and to, to make sure that everybody else had what they needed. And, of course, the lesson two for that is don't forget yourself. Uh, don't, don't forget to take care of yourself. Otherwise, you can't take care of other people. But, but um, it, it, it's a real lesson that we, that we can learn from there and to, to be aware of others.